You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast featuring some of Indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state, our communities, and us. Join us as we discuss their imprint on our history. Leaders and Legends is brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated, your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations, media relations, public outreach, crisis communications, and digital photography. My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. Thank you for listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. We are, I am incredibly honored and quite uh, frankly intimidated by having uh, <laughs> Professor Peter Carmichael, who is the uh, Director of the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College. He is also a native Hoosier, uh, graduated from Pike High School. We'll talk a little bit about that. He got his undergraduate degree at the Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. Then received a PhD at Penn State. He studied under, I believe, Gary Gallagher, who's probably the preeminent uh, historian of the South of the Civil War, maybe along with William Davis. And uh, could not be a nicer guy, could not be someone more uh, generous with his intellect. Peter, thank you, sir, for joining us. I'm happy to be here. I'm not a, I, wait, is it, what's the name of this again? Legends? and It's called Leaders and Legends. Right, right. And you are both because you have uh, really been one of the folks who, when I was at IPUI as an undergrad, we were all measured against. Uh, you're smart, but you know, Peter Carmichael. And, and so it's, it's, it's so leaders and legends is a way for me to uh, market my veteran business doing public relations and indulge my, uh, uh, insatiable curiosity and to get to ask questions of, of amazing, uh, accomplished people, bright people. And so far we've had a tremendous, uh, lineup of guests, many of whom you remember from your uh, days at, um, in Indiana, people like Jim Shella, Bill Benner, who wrote for the star. Yeah, and got some terrific ones uh, coming up. Yeah. So um, Peter is a, a preeminent a Civil War historian. So all you Civil War history buffs, buckle up for the next 45 to 60 minutes and uh, be ready because there's not a single question I could ask about the Civil War that Pete can't answer. I bet you could, but we'll try it. We'll give it a whirl. <laughs> <laughs> so you went to Pike High School. Did you? Were you yeah. born in Indianapolis? Yep, Indianapolis, 1966, Methodist Hospital. Uh, grew up on 6502 Bonanza Lane, so west side, not so far from Lafayette Square and Eagle Creek Reservoir. My mom still lives on the west side, uh, over by, what is that, the, the Boathouse Grill, you know what I'm talking about, right on the Rick's, reservoir? Yep, Rick's Cafe, Rick's. Boatyard Cafe. You can, you can almost see Rick's from where my mom lives now. So, yep, I am, uh, I am a Hoosier through and through my students. I've taught in North Carolina, West Virginia, and Indiana. And if I ever mention someone famous and I say, and where are they from? My students know <laughs> it's Indiana. I will never ask that question unless the answer is in Indiana. So, uh, yeah. Well, I, uh, at, I, uh, I, I, at Pike High School, uh, there was a, I'm assuming he was tall back then and gangly. And uh, there was a fellow who was a couple years behind you, I believe. Would you like to tell us uh, his name? A couple of years behind me and tall and gangly. Uh, Tim Cedric? No, he works in this uh, really big building and has security around him all the time. Oh, oh so the governor. <laughs> the governor is a few years behind me. 
I don't remember him real well, but I remember his best friend, Tim Sendrick, very well. You just recently wrote a book, and we're going to ask about that, and then you sent a copy to the governor. The governor's a well-known history buff. Eric Holcomb is a well-known history buff, collector of presidential signatures. Uh, Yes. And I saw, I I should add, you sent me that photo of the governor at the Indiana Historical Society, which it is hard to find another state historical society in this country that is as fine a repository as the Indiana Historical Society. And I was pleased to see Governor Holcomb uh, there. Uh, well, and you would know because you do a lot of researching on um, primary sources. What makes Indiana's so terrific? Well, one is just the, just the bones of the building. Thank God for Eli Lilly, right? The Lilly uh, and, and others uh, that have created a facility that is premier for doing research and has a very rich collection of letters and diaries and newspapers, including material uh, related to Abraham Lincoln. And then on top of that, they have excellent gallery space, and they're always rotating in and out. Various exhibitions that are very dynamic, and it's just, again, it's first rate all the way around. When I researched back in the day, it shows you that I had a deprived youth in Indiana. (laughs) Instead of hanging out at the malls and doing all the other fun things that teenagers do, I would go to the Indiana Historical Society, which was then located across the street where the State Library is today. It was just one little room. And that was it. So to see what it's become today, I'm obviously very proud of it, of the institution and glad that Governor Holcomb is uh, spending some time there. Yeah, he's a he's a full blown history nut and very, very knowledgeable and a veteran and is quite candidly. This conversation is not about politics, but is doing a terrific job as governor. And um, he when he collects these signatures, I'm always interested in how he actually gets them. I asked him when he was showing to me, showing them to me one time. And I laughed that I go, did you get Cleveland's twice? And he laughed hard. <laughs> he laughed heartedly and said, you're the only person who's asked me that. And the answer is yes. So we got Cleveland's awesome. twice. You, you went to IEPUI and uh, we had a lot of the same professors. Uh, I was, I came there. You think you graduated from high school. Is it 85? Uh, 84. 84. And I graduated in 86. Then I went in the military. So I didn't start college till August of 90. And you were gone from IUPUI then. That's right. 88. I left yeah. in 88. But we yeah. had a lot of the same professors. Uh, <laughs> talk talk a little bit about IUPUI. I mean, you wouldn't believe it if you've been there, haven't been there in the last five years. Yeah. But. You know, so I have stopped by and have given a talk or two. And I saw, or I should say, I attended the. Um, retirement ceremony for Monroe Little. I don't know if you ever had Dr. Little. Yeah, uh, I did. PhD, mm-hmm. Yeah, PhD from Princeton, a James McPherson um, a student, I believe. So, you know, I just want to, you know, say that IUPUI was a very good fit for me because the professors were always accessible. They also recognized that the students who came to IUPUI, um, they came to college with a range of, of, of backgrounds and and their preparation it was very varied. And I would say that there were some key skill sets were really well developed. No fight, fault of Pike High School. It's an undisciplined <laughs> student that I was. And, of course, an undisciplined student doesn't get to go to the kinds of schools that maybe he would like to have gone to. But it worked out very well for me. And I still take immense pride in going to a school where the people around me, for the most part, were working, uh, doing real jobs, getting their way through. Uh, often on their own dime. And that brought a certain, I don't know, sort of realness to it. it. It's very different from where I'm teaching now, which I love, by the way, is Gettysburg College. And I love the students here. I don't fault them for the fact 
that it is, I would say, a fairly insulated place. But IUPUI, uh, you know, it did right by me. And I'm glad to see that the institution is prospering, at least by physical appearances. Now, I don't know about the history department, as we know. The numbers for history majors is on the decline across right. the country. Right. Did, but you ended up, so you leave IPY and then you go to Penn State. So, I mean, most people would think, wow, that's a pretty significant leap in prestige. Uh, and yeah. then you study under Professor Gary Gallagher, who's prolific and respected and incredibly insightful when it comes to the Civil War. How did you uh, manage that little leap? Yeah. So every summer when I was at IUI, I worked in the National Park Service at Civil War battlefields. I spent most of my time at Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Park. And there I worked with Robert K. Crick the yeah. chief historian. Mm-hmm. He is, again, preeminent in his field. Uh, I was getting a just fantastic experience working with the public, cutting my teeth as a teacher, uh, doing research. I mean, it was just a dream. Every summer, I couldn't wait to get there. And because of my work at the park and my connection with Bob Crick, who knew Dr. Gallagher very well, he is the one who made this sort of marriage of sorts <laughs> take place. I'll never forget, I was in Bob's library and i said i said baba i would like to go to graduate school i want to study under gary gallagher and here again here's a government bureaucrat for you in action he picked <laughs> up the phone he called uh he called dr gallagher who happened to be coming down to uh to fredericksburg that weekend he said i want you to do a favor for me i want you to meet this kid he's going to be at spotsylvania dr gallagher drove down with his dog right and we spent 30 40 minutes and the very best decision I've ever made as a historian was that decision to work with him at Penn State. He's well, I've read several of his books. He's he's very, very sober. He's just so knowledgeable. You can tell he just lives lives in the sources and lives in the time period. Did when did the Civil War take hold of you? It, it took hold very early. Uh my my mother um loved to go to historical sites. Uh, my parents got divorced when I was really young. So I think my first battlefield, I was three, which, of course, I don't remember. It's Chickamauga. <laughs> There's a picture of me sitting on a cannon, which is a violation of Park Service rules, by the way. Uh, so <laughs> we won't let that photo surface. Everyone's going in everyone's past. All I need is the Park Service to see me sitting on a cannon. They'll find me retroactive. God knows what that line will be. So I did that when I was three. And then I remember with my stepdad, and I, I took his last name. I call him dad, right? Uh, my, my, my mother and father took me to Gettysburg when I was six or seven. And uh, I can't remember a day that I was consumed by the Civil War, a day that I didn't think that this is what I didn't you know, ultimately want to be. I, for a moment, I flirted to, wanting to be a landscape architect, which is truly laughable for so many reasons, <laughs> uh, largely because I can't do math at all. But I think that was the only time I thought maybe I don't want to do history, but I was pretty focused on this all along and very fortunate to have parents who were very supportive and took me to historic sites, as did my grandfather. My grandfather, Lloyd Tomlinson, had a gas station and rest in a restaurant where basically where Lafayette Square is today. And of course, when he was there, it was all cornfields, and then he became a bus driver for Pike Township, but he had this deep love. Uh, for history. And he took me out west. He took me to battlefields as well. So going to historic sites, I think you probably would agree with me. Oh, it's There's absolutely nothing better. Nothing better. It's essential. It's to, essential. To stand uh, 
I've been to Gettysburg about I think four times now, and and you you never I've I've never been there on July third, right? So the afternoon of July third when Pickett's charge took place, but just to stand there and look across the field and go, what the hell was Lee thinking? Like, did he really think these guys could could? And we'll get into some of that later, but we well, we do because you know what? That's it's not his best decision, but not as bad a decision as you would imagine. Well, well talk about that. Well, but it, you need to come out here. I, how do we keep missing each other when you come out here? Am I busy? You're busy. You you are busy, and and uh, there are times where I want to go to other ones. I'm a big fan of. So let's let's get into the Civil War because yeah, sure. That's yeah, the, that's the part that that I want to uh, indulge myself in because nobody wants to talk about this except unless I find people who want to, which is pretty damn rare. What, what has changed? You're a scholar. You've written several books. The last one is called the war for the common soldier, how men thought fought and survived in civil war armies. Uh, I read your book, audacity personified the book about uh, Robert E. Lee, but in terms of scholarship, I kind of have my own answer, but obviously I'm going to defer to you on most of these things. What has changed most in Civil War scholarship, like since you've gotten your Ph.D. and since you've started teaching? So when I started in graduate school and for the first, I'd say, 15, almost 20 years of my career, the scholarship connected what was what occurred on the battlefield to what took place on the home front and also connected to political issues as well as cultural issues. And, and we've not lost sight of that. So the integration of Civil War history, giving the reader the totality of that experience, uh, it's really uh, an incredible achievement uh, within our field. Uh, the, the, again, the, the richness, uh, the originality, all of the works that are coming out are truly remarkable. And, and Gary Gallagher's, I think, at, at the cutting edge, or he was, until he resigned his editorship of Civil War America, published by University of North Carolina Press. Any of your listeners, they can go online, right? Go to UNC Press, look at Civil War America, and you'll find books about politicians, generals, campaign studies, cultural history, nurses, women, it's everything. And it is books that are readable, books that are grounded in manuscript research, meaning original research. Right. And so that's, it has been incredibly uh, humbling. And at the same time, I'm very proud to sort of see myself as part of that wave. And, and of course, to be, a, in essence, a disciple of Gary Gallagher. But I now will be very direct. I have to be very careful about what I say here because I don't want it to be misconstrued. I have seen in the last five to seven years this shift to where African-American history has almost consumed, or I should say eclipsed, any other aspect of the war. And again, my comment here can be easily misinterpreted. I'm in no way suggesting that African-American history is not important. And I'm not suggesting that there's not more work to be done when it comes to African-American history. My concern is that the centrality of the African-American experience and how it's often being conveyed through Civil War scholarship, it loses the important connections 
in which we should situate that African-American experience because we shouldn't just see them. What it does, it isolates the African-American experience. So I have some concern that the field, and this came from a good place. I mean, good God. I mean, you and I both know, man, when, when we were undergraduates, African-American history was on the margins. And that's, that's a mistake. Uh, now I fear we've maybe gone too far in the other direction. And we really need, as I always believe, to be in the healthy healthy have a healthy balance right to be right in the center well there's certainly there's certainly a lot to be said in terms of the the idea that it was a team effort uh, that that the argument i never caught into the argument that the slaves freed themselves because there is no successful servile insurrection before the armies came through but if you make the that's physical bonds if you make arguments about spiritual and and religious and emotional then, then I'm on board. And I do believe that it emphasizing X over Y, whatever they are, and, and you try to peel apart the conflict that doesn't mesh with what the soldiers were doing on the field, what was happening overseas, what was happening in the factories, and what was happening on the home front, then you start to lose focus in the totality of what it took to win and the totality of why the South lost. Am I off base? Yeah, yeah. No, I know absolutely. I agree with you. And there are so many other questions. The ones you've just raised are are, are very good ones. I think what we have to recognize, and as historians, I believe the most important quality is empathy. And look, I understand why my students today, and why even some academics, uh, how they perceive contemporary problems. They then look to the past, either as a source of inspiration, a source of comfort, and some kind of direction. I understand that, but I don't agree with it. That's not, to me, what history's purpose is about. Now, of course, that's why we're all in the same business together. We are here to be able to knock these ideas around, and uh, I, I, though, but there I was, am troubled. But there was, also, there was also a, a drive, and, and maybe I've lost touch with it, to try to say, that slavery was not the cause of the war. I've had people say that to me, and I just I look at them like a dog looks at the television. Like you, you can't be serious. Where do you, where do you, where do you come down? I mean, to, to me, slavery is the is the rock, paper, and scissors of the cause of the war. But tell me if I'm right, or tell me if I'm wrong. Well, I think that the first thing that is, I think, will give you some cause for comfort is that certainly amongst professional historians since I've been in the game, so we're talking about 30 years, uh, that question about the cause of the war has, for the most part, been settled. Now, it gets very reductionist if you just stop at slavery caused the war. Sure. There is no doubt. There is no doubt that there are some what I call rear guard actions. Those rear guard actions in which people are adamant that slavery had nothing to do with it, that it had everything to do with states' rights, Tariff, tariffs, tariffs are mentioned. Tariffs and all that stuff. And in the politics have to come in here because the people who often advance that perspective, they have a, uh, I would say, a pretty far right wing libertarian approach to the world. And they are doing just what a lot of other folks do on the other side. They're also manipulating and using the past for their own, but I'd say pretty sordid political purposes. I will say this to you, though, Robert, and that's this. And I, this gets me in trouble with my liberal academic friends and probably doesn't win many friends on the right as well. I don't think it's enough just to say slavery caused the war. 
the war was about a conflict between wage labor in the North and mm-hmm. slave labor in the South. It is a war between two political economies. Those political economies were in absolute perfect economic compatibility. They're making crazy money. Everybody is, which goes to show you, if you're in economic determinism, you're not going to win in trying to understand the coming of the war. It's the territories. It is the question exactly. of the territories. It's about the power, and that's all about political economy. So I don't think we should elevate Northerners as saints and Southerners as sinners. we got to remind ourselves that there were real ideas, real issues, economic as well as political, that were at stake. And it's because a wage labor North, a slave labor South, they could have gotten along forever. They could have. They could have. If it wasn't for the Mexican War? If it wasn't for Abraham Lincoln getting elected. And you know what? Thank God for Lincoln for many reasons. Thank God for Lincoln because he wasn't going to kick the can anymore about the question of slavery's expansion in the territories. We're going to do it. And, you know, for those who say, oh, he should have compromised. He should have postponed this thing. I'll say this. That's easy to say. But if you're an enslaved person, I suspect four more years of compromise, eight more years of compromise, a decade more of compromise, whatever. Man, that's me. That's my family. That's my children still Mm -hmm. enslaved. So uh, as you just pointed out, Robert, they're in a society in which slavery was not destroyed by what? By the force of arms. It takes that. It takes that. And we had to go through it ourselves. And every compromise... uh, my graduate degrees in medieval history, but I didn't know that. Yeah, that's cool. For uh, Professor Cutler at IPUI, Cutler. But I was yes. going to do my uh, master's and PhD in Civil War history under our good friend John Stevens. May he rest in peace. That's but that. he he retired, so he he walked me down to Cutler's office at IPUI at Kavanaugh Hall and said, "Hey, Cutler, meet Vane. You're the only two Republicans in this building." And he walked away. <laughs> that's a true story. Was Stevens that one? Oh, he's left of Khrushchev, but he just wasn't, well, he he was wasn't politically correct. He was a big time. No, he's yeah, an FDR yeah. Democrat, New Deal, yeah, New Deal yeah. Democrat. But he was a one thousand percent believer in in freedom of freedom speech, speech yeah, and right. academic Absolutely. freedom. And that's Absolutely. quite frankly, he he along with the incredibly brilliant uh, Bill Bloomquist has shaped my uh, views on that sort of thing. And, you know, you grew up on the East Side which isn't the most genteel part of the city, and then you serve right. in the military, and then you come get a couple of liberal arts degrees, and you know your views on on public discourse and freedom of the speech are pretty well said. And you know it's unfortunate that there's a, a group of people who just seem to say, no, you can't say that, and no, you can't talk about that, and no, you can't think that. And I'm I, co- I, I, completely I, I, against yeah. them. I don't give a damn how yeah. they vote. If that's if that's yeah, the, the foundation of a worldview and political discourse, uh, then rotten uh, hell. Uh, well, no, I'm right there with you. And, I, you know, Robert, it, what is hard for me to tell these days, um, as I can tell you that in the history department at Gettysburg College, that um, the allowance, the encouragement for the freedom of expression to recognize that people have different perspectives all over. I think that as a department, we're pretty good on that front. Now, I will say, though, that I am troubled by what's happening within the academy. I think that the Fox News people, they grossly distort what's happening, that they make it appear that all these liberal arts schools, all these universities you know, are basically Marxist camps. And that's just not true at all. That's ridiculous. <laughs> what you can do is you can easily single out an individual, and then both sides do it. 
And we had an incident here that would really get us off the tracks. But I'll say this. The Wall Street Journal and Robert Brace yourself, I subscribe to the Wall Street Journal. I think their news reporting is top notch, top notch. Strong. They reported they reported on an incident that occurred here at Gettysburg College. It was a photograph that was found of a former trustee in a Nazi uniform at a frat party at Gettysburg College in 1981 to discover that this frat party was the Hogan's Heroes Party. And oh there was a lot of fallout. But here we'll get back to my point. The Wall Street Journal did a piece on it. And the person they quoted, an academic, and I won't say much more, but he is not representative of mainstream views at Gettysburg College. And so we got someone who's truly on the margins, and that happens again on both sides. I, I sometimes feel like we're back to that time right before the Civil War, where we have Southern newspaper editors who portray every Republican as a radical abolitionist. And then in the North, we have northern politicians and northern newspapermen portray every southerner as part of the slave power and we have a problem in this country and it is fox news it is cnn right and, hey. and it is and it is and it's msnbc our mainstream journalists they live off ratings they prey upon what i think are the um, the bad instincts of the people that's to go to the extremes they want to be titillated they want they want to be right aroused. Well, it's and where the, is doing it. the media doing it. the media covers conflict, and that's right. That's, that's right. where the conflict they live off is. Of it. Hey, I'm they happy to be. Anyone wants to call me a black Republican? You know what? I am down a hundred percent. I'm happy to associate myself with Charles Sumner and uh, and Seward. <laughs> And, and, and Sam Fuchs. That's I'm, right. I'm Those shocked, Robert. They're radicals. Let me ask you let a question. Ask you, Robert, let's have a give and take here. Robert, go ahead. What did, what did Seward and what did Sumner, so for your audience, these are abolitionists mm -hmm. at heart. They are Republicans. Seward's not really an abolitionist, but he's, he's certainly in that. What did they offer white Southerners, I should say, slaveholders, in terms of the future and their institution? What kind of compromise? What kind of vision? What kind of plan? What do they offer? Isn't it Seward who gave the irrepressible conflict speech? Yes, yes. Um, How could you admire a man who gave a speech like that? Well, I, when when the foundation of of a society is the involuntary servitude of an entire race of people, I just don't really have much sympathy for how they're treated. I, I've well, never I've never strayed I, from the slavery cause. To your point, it's it's not the alpha and omega, but it's pretty damn well, close. I mean, every well, every compromise that was fashioned before the Civil War uh, centered on slavery, as it's well, whether it's the Kansas Nebraska Act or Missouri Compromise or Compromise of eighteen fifty. I mean, it's trying to figure out a solution to this intractable problem that was left to nineteenth century politicians. And you know what? They didn't solve it, and what solved it was the Iron Brigade. <laughs> was war. So we agree on the war part. I just want to quickly say this, that when you have someone like Seward and Sumner, and they can't offer any true alternative, any alternative, how are slaveholders to deal with their property that what you conveniently overlooked that has enriched the North, especially Northern industrialists? So, you know, I take people on their own terms. They, I know they all have their contradictions on both sides, but I find it more than just a little hypocritical that someone like Sumner or even Seward, as they're condemning the South, hell, every day they're seeing in their own backyard these mills that have become what? Centers of wealth because they're getting cotton from the South that are taken by, by slave labor. 
everyone's getting rich off of slavery. I'm not trying to say that it's right or just. I'm just saying there's a degree of hypocrisy that we often need to acknowledge about the North, and it's important for today. Well, because let me, we need to continue. Don't you think? Let, let, let me ask. Let me ask you a question on this because because that's one of the things I wanted to talk about, and I want to yeah. ask you kind of about individuals. But sure. who came closest to figuring out a way to avoiding the Civil War? Was it Andrew Jackson when he threatened to hang Clay and Calhoun <laughs> 30 years ago before? Right, I mean, right, who, right. who, who right. came closest to trying to figure this out? Because if you read, and, and you know, Dr., uh, we're here with Dr. Peter Carmichael, the head of the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg Ch- College. You're a scholar, and I'm an educated reader. And so I've read, I don't know how many books on the Civil War I've read. It's got to be almost triple digits. But, yeah, but I don't have the level that you do in terms of research. And, and, and I've never figured out in all my reading how they could have avoided that war. Who came closest to try to figure it out? Well, it seems to me that with Missouri Compromise and the Compromise of 1850, and for your listeners, just, uh, just sort of summarize its impact. It created a situation in which the territories are divided so that Southerners can take their slave labor, right, below the Missouri Compromise line. Northerners can have uh, wage labor or free labor above. All that gets upset with the Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1854. So rather than saying who had the best compromise or the best way out of this mess, it was there until the Kansas-Nebraska Act of, 1850, uh, of 1854. And that's Stephen Douglas. That's popular, popular sovereignty. sovereignty. That's yeah. opening it up and saying, hell, Anyone could go on that territory and make any claim that they want. And Douglas was able to avoid the thorny issue, and that is, are you for taking slave labor into the territories, or are you for taking wage labor? And what does he do? What all what happens in democracy time and time again? We'll let the people decide. And, that, and there's a great, I have to give you the great quote from the brilliant sitcom Peep Show in England. Have you ever watched it? No. Super hands and peep show. I'm telling you, for your listeners, if you take anything away, get on YouTube and watch it. It's genius. Super hands. He's kind of a druggy kind of dude. He says, someone was referring to democracy, and he said, look what democracy gave us. Coldplay and Hitler. That's <laughs> 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 a make, good show. So I'm telling we you, make Stephen no Douglas judgment. messed things up, and we never will know, was Douglas truly committed to the idea of popular sovereignty? Because it put power in the hands of the people or was this all a political ploy because he needed southern democrats right he needed them to get into the presidential office and i'm a fan of the latter and and he might have had a chance if bell and breckenridge hadn't entered the election in 1860 one of my favorite i have several favorite quotes from the civil war i want to ask you and i'm going to bungle it because they're not in front of me but i think i know these Uh, one of them is by senator hal cobb senator from georgia i believe Georgia, that's your correct. And uh, at the very end of the war, when the Confederacy was honestly on its last mm-hmm. legs, uh, right. there was a consideration among the Confederate leadership. It might have been up there with Jefferson Davis, who was president of the Confederacy. You're correct. To arm the slaves. In other words, if you fight for that's us, we'll give us your freedom. That's right. And how Cobb's quote was something to the effect of, if the slaves will make great soldiers then our entire theory of slavery is wrong that's very well done you've got the right person you've got the right quote he certainly did say that 
What's intriguing about that is I believe his opinion when he uttered it, which is late 1864, right. I think that he was actually probably in the minority amongst Confederate politicians as well as Confederate military officials. Probably the strongest advocate for arming the slaves was Robert E. Lee. Exactly. And, uh, and, and Lee and Jefferson Davis, I think, recognized that they advanced this too late in the game. Early 1865, there are uh, or there were a few companies that were drilling. A few companies they never saw any field service, and we have to again make the important point: they were slaves. Don't don't think that these people are volunteering because they have a great love for the Confederate cause. Another one of my favorite quotes from the Civil War is: is it actually was written afterward, and it's by Jefferson Davis. And I believe it was, JD. <laughs> and I believe it was, um, I think it might've been in his memoirs. And the quote is next to the defeat of the Confederacy, the death of Abraham Lincoln is the darkest day the South ever knew. Do you agree with, do you, do you think that Lincoln could have figured out reconstruction? Okay. So first we'll think about Davis's comments again, to try to gauge the, of a sincerity is hard to say about that. To put that point forward, though, Davis is probably or was probably more interested in portraying Reconstruction as a great tragedy in which white Southerners were victims. I'll say that when we look at Reconstruction, we should not look at it as a success or as a failure. I think it's truly remarkable what occurred. I think many of the historical processes unleashed by the war, some of those processes stalled in ways that are more than just a little uncomfortable. I mean, it is brute violence that was deployed against free African-Americans as well as white Republicans so that a certain class of white Southerners could regain political and economic power. I do not like to explain Reconstruction that it ultimately succumbed to white racism and white power. That certainly had a strong presence, but that as the universal, uh, complete explanation of what happened after the war, it fails to overlook that not all white Southerners were in agreement, but more importantly, it fails to see that in that moment, and Robert, this gets right to your point, it is a moment in which as Americans we should be immensely proud of. It is a moment in which African-Americans who had just, what, a year before had been enslaved people with no political rights, no right to vote. They can't even have control over their personal lives. And what the war wrought was a complete and total revolution. Was there backsliding? Yes, absolutely. What about Jim Crow? What about uh, sharecropping? All of that is, I, I more than lament what occurred. But the hard fact of it all is that after 1865, African Americans can never be purchased and they cannot be sold. That is a revolution. And I'll just put it encapsulated for you there, I think, in a nice image for your listeners. 1859, John Brown's raid. It's a mm -hmm. failed slave insurrection. It failed in part because U.S. Marines under Robert E. Lee rushed to Harper's Ferry and they quell the insurrection. It's done. That's federal troops. Federal troops on behalf of the slaveholding class, as they should have been. Those slaveholders were U.S. citizens. 1865, 1865, Charleston, South Carolina, the cradle of secession, the epicenter 
of the fire eaters, the first troops to march into that captured city. First troops. Robert, who were they? Any ideas? They were first they, they were Sherman's troops, or did they come off the and ship? Not Sherman's men, mm -hmm. but they were African American soldiers. United States colored troops marching into Charleston, singing John Brown's body. I'm telling you, what would the Vegas odds have been in 1859 if someone said, hey, Charleston's going to fall to black soldiers fighting for the federal government? That image, that image, juxtaposing, I should say, those two images. Harper's Ferry, 1859, Charleston, 1865. That juxtaposition captures in its essence a true revolution. Reconstruction, did it go in a straight line toward the freedoms that we, of course, believe that Americans are entitled to? It did not. But it certainly started the process that never, ever stopped, never, ever stalled, but then certainly accelerated during the second American Revolution, which I call the Civil Rights Movement, modern Civil Rights Movement. I wrote an article several years ago. I'd like to rewrite it and maybe try to get it published again that the point of the article was for the Indianapolis Business Journal, their opinion page, and right. where I came out against reparations for slavery and made my little case, which I don't need to go into here. But I came out square, squarely in favor of reparations for Jim Crow, and oh. that anyone, any African American born before the end of World War II, so that's 1945, ought to get a check because the repercussions of Jim Crow are still here. And it doesn't take a, a thorough watching of Mississippi burning to understand that, that the, the average black person in the United States born during World War II or before, or maybe even the early 50s, right. basically had no chance. No chance at the American dream, or at least a significantly diminished chance at the American dream. I mean, just as late as 1966... Lester Maddox, a Democrat running for governor in Georgia, built his campaign on the fact that he chased black people out of his hardware store with axe handles. Right. And right. and right. so the, the Civil War determinant part of, of slavery and reparations, which is, is quite frankly getting a hearing in the Democrat primaries among candidates, uh, I think it was Beto just came out and said he'd sign it, but it's a pretty common uh, platform plank. I never really attached myself to that. But I could tell you this, when I see a 75, 80, 85-year-old person at the mall or on the street or in a restaurant, I look at them and I'm like, I just feel so terribly for them. And maybe they don't feel it, and maybe I shouldn't feel that way. But I'm thinking, when you graduated from high school, what were your options? How were you treated? How were you treated under the law? How were you treated by the law? And if somehow a statute got passed that they got... Twenty, thirty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars for their pain and suffering, and for their lack of opportunity. I'd sleep up, sleep like a baby that night. It wouldn't bother me at all. <laughs> I, I'm intrigued by your your proposition. I, I I'm very um, conflicted by it all. Although I always, of course, appreciate someone like yourself who recognizes that um, the historical world in which people inhabit it certainly puts certain constraints as well as certain opportunities. And uh, I'm more troubled now, and I'm troubled by the Democratic Party, which, of course, has, uh, to me, soft liberalism. I think that the Democratic Party, when they get off the tracks and they talk about any kind of reparation, that it is almost always for cheap political gain. 
and what it keeps the party from doing and what it's and here's again the irony right we would have thought <laughs> that donald trump is really not a republican he's just for himself but that donald trump at least has the good common sense and maybe even the decency i'm not sure about the latter but certainly the common sense to understand that working people in this country that there is a, a fragile nature to their life because that's the that's the world of global capitalism and i'm not trying to denounce it and I'm not trying to celebrate it. I'm saying that's the reality. So to get to your point, my concern always is when people look to the past and try to explain their world that they live in currently. For example, I go to Baltimore. When I go to Baltimore, that is a just a desperate city in so many ways. If we want to understand Baltimore as we want to understand Philadelphia or Gary, it's deindustrialization. And and if we want to blame slavery for that, that's a mistake. Well, and that's where the Democratic Party has got off its tracks. Well, it's the east no side of Indianapolis right. because when I was there a kid go. growing up in Absolutely. the 70s and 80s, all my, all my, uh, and then we'll move on, but all my families, all their parents worked at Ford and Naval Avionics yeah. and Chrysler and Western yeah. Electric that's and right. Paper Art that's and Ryerson right. Steel that's and right. International Harvester. Right. Those are all that's gone. Right. You mentioned, all gone. You mentioned uh, something a few minutes ago about, you know, could you have predicted? Uh, and I want to move on to, to my favorite figure of the war by far. In 1860, there was this fella who had to pawn his gold watch for, I believe, $24 to buy wedding presents, excuse me, to buy Christmas presents for his wife and his kids. So this is Christmas 1860. Less than four years later, he's the first lieutenant general since George Washington. Talk a little bit about Grant, Ulysses S. Grant, who I believe is the preeminent figure of, of the war. We can argue about Lincoln, of course. He's maybe above above discussion. But Grant, to me, is the most compelling person in the entire war, given where he came from and what he absolutely. accomplished. What do you, Am I wrong? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I certainly, he's up in the, uh, the pantheon for all of us. And that, again, is, Robert, a profound change as to how people have seen him in the public eye. As I mentioned, when I was at IEPY, I worked at these national parks in the 80s. Time and time again, when I was at Appomattox Courthouse, when I was at Cold Harbor, the site of one of Grant's more serious defeats, people would routinely refer to him as nothing but a drunk who won the war really through sheer luck and the fact that he had more men than Robert E. Lee. That dominant interpretation of the 80s has fallen by the wayside, and thank God for it. I think that, yes, there is much he, to admire in Grant, much he, to admire. And, and I'm sorry, go ahead, Robert. You know, I was going to say, he was even portrayed once on the Beverly Hillbillies. As he yes. was, remember, he yes. rode up in his horse, yes. and he was drunk, and yes. he could, against, yes. you know, of course, Granny, unreconstituted yeah. Confederate. Right. But, right. but because you know, remember, I, they were... They were filming a movie. They were filming. Yeah. A movie. You're the only other person who's ever mentioned that. I mentioned that to the kids all the time. They're like, "What's Beverly Hillbillies?" And they, they don't even know. Uh, but no, that's that's well, a great cultural reference. So I, I gave some uh, some uh, a speech to the some Civil War roundtables, including Indianapolis. In the I uh, gave yes. a speech to Civil War roundtables in the Midwest. I'm happy to come to Gettysburg College. You know, for a for a dinner or a lunch to give the same speech. And the speech That's was, <laughs> Oh, I'm just happy to see you. Uh, <laughs> it's called how Lincoln and Grant won the war. I believe Grant is the, the, the greatest general of the war. Now that's certainly, you know, that would have been blasphemous just 20, yeah, 30 years ago. And one of absolutely. the reasons is because 
Lincoln constantly bespoke of of three military objectives. One is the free navigation of, or excuse me, four, forgive me, four. One is the securing of Kentucky. Lincoln famous said, I'd like to have, famously said, I'd like to have God on my side, but I must have Kentucky. Uh, the second is the navigation, free navigation of the Mississippi River. And the third one is the uh, securing of the Unionist part of East Tennessee. And fourth was the destruction of Lee's army and slash capture of Richmond. And there was one general who gave him all four things. Get them all. Get and them that's all. Ulysses S. Grant. And there's no Just, comparable record of accomplishment by any other general, quite frankly, in almost any other war in American history, unless you go back to Washington. I, I think you're spot on. And I would only add to that, and this is not to take away from Grant's achievements, it's to simply say that he was able to grow as a commander and to make those mistakes, not under the watchful eye of Washington, D.C., and that meant fighting in Virginia, as many other Union officers had done and had failed. Grant made his mistakes, but he made them out in the West, and just the sheer distance gave him a, a, some insulation, and I think probably saved his career at some critical junctures when things could have gone badly for him. Well, when he, but what you, go oh, ahead. Sorry, go no, ahead. you go ahead. No, you go ahead, please. Well, I just want to say that you know the thing that I think we can all admire in Grant is his perseverance, his determination. He's absolutely unflappable. And now I will give you a quote from Sherman, which I fear is not, of course, <laughs> can be off just a little bit, right? But he basically said, Sherman said, I'm smarter than Grant. That's right. Grant knows that I'm smarter than him, but Grant doesn't care what the enemy's going to do, and that scares the hell out of me. And, uh, and I think that, that that's absolutely true. I think that one thing that is the misconception about Grant, that he fought a war of attrition or that he fought a modern war, both of those things don't begin to help us understand the strategic brilliance and complexity in which he, Grant, organized Union armies in 1864. That organization of Union armies was not just in Virginia, but it was across the Confederacy. And once you understand the choreography of that, and it's a choreography, and he, of course, Grant is at the helm, then you can appreciate and understand why the severe astounding losses that occurred in Virginia, uh, they make sense. You might still be critical of Grant, and you might even think that they're inexcusable, but it wasn't just a sacrifice of blood for nothing. Well, and he he, he developed a strategy of, of what's called a concentration in time, in which he had all the armies all moving at the same time right. so that right. the Confederates could not ship off the first corps from Northern Virginia down to Georgia to allow for the blow at Chickamauga in September of 1863. And interestingly enough, it became so successful. His concentration in time strategy became a concentration in place as Sherman marched through Georgia and then came North. Uh, I'm going to, you know, Grant to me, is almost he's a preeminent American figure. He, he he symbolizes or or personifies the American sense of opportunity. He was he selling does. firewood on yeah. a street corner before yeah. the war started, and the war gave him purpose. In one of his first uh, encounters, he was scared to death and you know didn't really know what to do. And then when he got to the place where he thought he would find the enemy, enemy excuse me, the enemy had fled. 
And he right. said, I never forgot that, that they were just as scared as me as I was right. of them. And he used that to his f- effect over and over. Um, to me, and I'm going to say something blasphemous, and I want you to tell me to go to hell. <laughs> I'll forgive your sins after it, so go ahead. Please, It is Lent. Please go ahead. We're talking to Peter Carmichael, who's the head of the Civil War Institute here on Leaders and Legends, sponsored by Veteran Strategies and, and in partnership with the Girl Scouts of Central Indiana. I think Gettysburg is an overrated battle. I believe Shiloh is the most important battle of the world. Now, take me on. Well, I will, because I'll just, and it's not because I'm going to elevate Gettysburg or diminish Shiloh. I, I want you to have a very different understanding of the flow of military events. And you should see it almost like currents coming in and washing up against the shoreline. And so one of those major currents is in summer and late fall of 1862 with the uh, Seven Days Campaign at Richmond and then culminating with the fall invasions in the north and not just Antietam but also in Kentucky right so there's one wave and then there's another wave that will occur that's the summer of 1863 and then the final wave I would say is late summer of 1864 I think it's better to look at it in those terms rather than to try to find turning points and I will say after finishing this book on the common soldier that the men themselves how they um, oriented uh, themselves individually uh, toward the war. They rarely framed it, rarely framed it around these grand military maneuvers or, or military campaigns. The, the war and what happened in the field certainly mattered to them. But I think, Robert, what you're sort of pointing toward is that if you really want to understand people at that time and at that moment, how they made sense, they are utterly baffled. They are absolutely confused, not just on a daily basis, when these men were in the ranks, and they were, because their lives were filled with rumors. They are beholden to officers. They don't have control over their individuality. So there is just in a daily life a certain confusion. And then on top of that, you read the papers, you try to figure out these grand campaigns that are beyond your line of sight, that are thousands of miles away, and that even adds to the confusion. So we look back on the war with a degree of clarity that people at the time really, really had it. Back to Gary Gallagher, that's always been his calling card. Stop evaluating events with hindsight. Try to see the moment as it unfolded in a very, I would say, spontaneous way. Is it is it fair for me to 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 believe and assert? And I've I've had this argument, and I hate to say it, but it was it wasn't an argument, but I did get looked at like I was on heroin. <laughs> and and the person gazing at me was the uh, former governor of Indiana and current president of Purdue University, Mitch Daniels, who, as you know, is a nice, he's, doing a, he's doing a good job at Purdue. Uh, he does a, a good, nice job. He it. seems to have the Midas touch, uh, but he yeah. we we fussed about it at a lunch because I made the case that that Shiloh was the most important battle of the war, and and the reason that I made it, I made two or three points, none of which he particularly cared for, but. That doesn't mean that I was wrong because if Shiloh had ended differently, say even maybe in the inverse, Lincoln would not have had Grant for the rest of the war. And to me, the emergent emergence of Grant is the determinant battlefield strategic and tactical factor that caused the war to end in April of 65. Well, I, I would just say that two things. One, he nearly lost Grant because of Shiloh, right? I mean, 
Grant doesn't come out of shallow very clean. There's rumors about his drinking, which probably weren't true. He was certainly unprepared. Lincoln sends Halleck, and Halleck is now right in charge, right? And so right. Grant's been pushed aside a little bit. So on the one hand, you are correct. Shiloh certainly did reveal Grant's determination to continue to fight. But I think there's a bigger issue here, and that is we need to stop looking at these wars as hinging upon the actions and decision-making of a few generals. There are just far too many other factors that come to bear that deserve serious consideration. So, again, I'm not trying to suggest that this was a war that was decided ultimately by the people. It was not. It was decided by, again, a range of things, and that's why we should continue to try to seek out for the most complex answer possible. And, uh, and Gettysburg just is not it. Yeah. Now, the Adams County Chamber of Commerce doesn't want me to say that. They want everyone <laughs> who's listening to this to come out and to believe that the Civil War hinged upon three days in Adams County. But it did not. It did not. But but when you take Chancellorsville the previous May and Gettysburg and you take the combined casualties against Lee's Army in Northern Virginia, it's game over. There is for Lee's Army. That's right. These offensive muscle shredding. It's gone. But you got to take both of those battles together. You and, you, and, together. You lo- and you lose Stonewall at Chancellorsville. And which was a blow. And let's not forget while we're here real quickly, anyone who's listening, if you have any interest in Lee and you want a provocative look at Lee, you need to go to the great historian from Indiana, Robert, his name, Civil War historian who wrote on Lee. Alan Nolan. Oh, he was Absolutely. a judge, Absolutely. and he wrote a book called Lee Considered, which is, I was go. just going to ask you about Lee, that uh, that really, along with, I think it's Thomas Connolly's book, The Marble yeah. Man, was yeah. the first person, first effort to really say, look, let's get Lee off his pedestal, figuratively, and right. take a look at him. And I would throw in there, in terms of revisionist Confederate history, which, which I think is one of my top 10 books in the history of the Civil War, and that is Lee's Tarnished Lieutenant, the Piston, yeah, William, the William Garrett Piston, uh, Piston book Piston. about uh, James Longstreet, who I think is a phenomenal commander, uh, yeah. obviously gets somewhat tarnished by this performance or non-performance at Gettysburg. But talk a little bit about Lee, because whether I hate to say it's political correctness, because that seems kind of trite, but but. Lee seems to have really taken some significant blows in terms of his reputation in the last 20 years. I think Nolan wrote his book maybe in the mid nineties. That's correct. And and so are you, would you consider yourself a fan of Lee or would you consider yourself, Hey, look, the reevaluation is long overdue. Well, I always, uh, I don't consider myself really, I admire people in the past. I admire Robert E. Lee. I know that's not fashionable. I, it's like Thomas Jefferson. We admire these people, not because they own slaves. We admire these people for other qualities, for Thomas Jefferson, John, a brilliant intellect, right? I mean, there's just so much there. I will not dismiss him just because he owned slaves and because he was contradictory about that. And I say the same thing about Robert E. Lee. There's much to admire about Lee. Uh, certainly, uh, the cause for which he fought was a failed cause, a cause that um, was a cause for slavery. That's undeniable. As a general, I think that there is, and here we'll disagree, I don't think that, I think Grant is second to Lee. Uh, I think that what uh, R.E. Lee was able to accomplish with the Army of Northern Virginia was truly phenomenal. I think that the aggressive strategy as well as tactics that Lee pursued 
time and time again was not because Lee was reckless. And I think Alan Nolan is wildly off here as Thomas Conley. I think Robert E. Lee recognized that the Confederacy only had so much sand in the hourglass. And if the Confederacy assumed a defensive posture, the time was not on their side. They're doomed. So Lee recognized, as he did here in Pennsylvania, that he had to strike. He could not simply, with, of course, the offensive or tactical advantage that he had after July 1st, a sweeping and complete victory, I might add. And then on July 2nd, he nearly broke the Union line at a number of places. That on July the 3rd, his great shortcoming, his great failure, was not sending enough men into the attack. It was an attack of 12,000 soldiers, his smallest. I give you all these details and your listeners to say to you, everyone, when something seems so utterly ridiculous, so foolishness in the past, I beg everyone, read and think more closely because you know what? Robert E. Lee is a pretty smart guy. You might not admire him. You might not respect him, but he's smart. And it had worked before. It had worked at Gaines Mill. And he's not going to send men to their to their death without some deep thinking. Now, again, I'm not saying it's his best decision, but it certainly was not a decision in which he very callously threw men's lives away. That's it, not it, what happened. At all. No, I I completely agree with that. I mean, if if you think that he attacked on the ends on the on the previous time that the center ought to be yeah. weakened and and, and you know. <laughs> Robert, I have also, to interrupt real quickly. Mm-hmm. Robert, did you probably didn't know this, and most of your listeners won't, even those who've been to Gettysburg. Did you know that the Union Center near the Cops of Trees was broken on July 2nd? You didn't know that, did you? I did not. There was a Confederate, the Confederate attacks that stretched from the Confederate right, right? The ones that hit Little Round Top and then hit the Peach Orchard, and then they move along and they hit uh, over by the Trossel Farm. They continued to the north. And a Confederate brigade, Ambrose Wright's brigade, broke the Union Center, got all the way, for those of your listeners who've been to Gettysburg, got pretty close to where the Pennsylvania Memorial is, a a big, big, massive uh, monument that looks like the Taj Mahal. They got to that area. So there's a lot of evidence there for Robert E. Lee that there's some possibilities here. Although that was not his intention. On July the 3rd, he wanted to resume the attacks on the flanks that occurred on July 2nd. Yes, sorry, that part, no, no, that part I, I did know. Let me ask you yeah, a quick sorry. question but before we sure. wind up here quickly because I know you have other things to do. You're listening no, to no. Leaders and Legends, sponsored by Veteran Strategies and the Girl Scouts of Central Indiana. What did you think of the movie Lincoln? So I loved the first scene. I could not stand it. Uh, but after that, I thought it is a fantastic movie. I thought Daniel Day Daniel Day Lewis was really good. Uh, I also thought Sally Field did a great job as Mary Lincoln. And I'll tell you why I appreciated the movie is because it showed Lincoln in a very sort of unvarnished way, meaning he, at his very core, was a hard-nosed politician. And if there is anything the American mm-hmm. people need to appreciate about the great Abraham Lincoln, is yes, see him as a statesman all you want. And he understood when those moments arose and when he needed to be a statesman. But let's not forget, kids, we live in a democracy. It's partisan politics. It's a nasty, ugly business. And Lincoln, he could get into the gutter. And he knew, though, and this is the beauty of it all, 
that there are moments in which you can come clean in a democracy. And he was able, at very, I would say, important moments during the war, such as the Emancipation Proclamation, right. that he got us clean. But we need to recognize Abraham Lincoln at his very core, his very being, his very essence, he is a politician. An ambitious he, one, as he admitted many times. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> and I wouldn't want one who's not. I don't get any of that kind of nonsense that we hear today. And I thought that the movie did it really, really well, really well. And it really well. humanized him. It brought him off the the, the, the pedestal of the Lincoln Memorial Absolutely. where he's arguing, and, and where just, he smacks his kid and he's arguing yeah, with his crazy wife and, and, right. and having to, you know, basically do, you know, certainly yeah. some, some parsing of words when it yeah. comes to, uh, the end of the war and, and how the, the Confederacy and the Union were trying to hash out something which never really had a chance, I don't well, think. I, I would say again, why your listeners, if they've not been to Gettysburg, why there's reason to come, you need to go to the National Cemetery, which is very close to the location where Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address. An address today that people want to interpret for their all their their contemporary and immediate needs, rather than to see what that address was in its essence about. And it was, we've got a war, my people, and we need to keep fighting. And those men that he needed to keep fighting, he had a message for them. He's remember what he called those men? On his side, of course, his thinking bayonets. His thinking bayonets. And, you know, that's what I wanted to do with this book. I wanted to restore to both sides, not just how these men thought, why they fought, but I wanted to get the reader into the shoes of those soldiers so that the reader could see the world as the soldiers imagined it, so they could better understand how these men got through this horrible ordeal, which in some instances gave them this great sense of purpose that they were sacrificing and suffering for a higher cause, and that is both sides. And that there were other moments, as I mentioned before, that these men are utterly baffled and confused by a war that it seemingly has devoured certitude, devoured truth. It is fascinating to see, and it gets us away again, not just seeing Lincoln as this leader that we should admire from afar, but even these soldiers. We can see them more as human beings. What does it take for a man, as we wind up in our last few minutes before we end with the five questions, what does it take (laughs) in a man who the night before what he thinks is going to be a major battle, or what he's been told is a major battle, to write his name on a piece of paper and pin it to his uniform because he's pretty damn sure he's going to die the next day and he doesn't want right. to go unidentified. That's right. Which is the That's famous right. story from, I believe, Cold Harbor and probably the other places. Uh, absolutely. In other places as well, a, a soldier in my book, Charles Bowen from Utica, New York, right before a major assault at Petersburg, he was quite certain that he would die. He took all of his personal belongings, including a note to his wife. He handed it to a comrade who was sick, and then he proceeded and survived an attack that was truly hellish. What compelled men to do this? There are a range of factors, and we should never forget this, and it's a strong theme in my book. It's coercion. It is coercion. It's often invisible, but there's a recognition on both sides that if I don't do my part, that I'm going to have to meet military justice. And, of course, military justice could be awfully cruel. It could often be uneven. And the, appro- else, and the appropriation of their colleagues, of their comrades. Well, there you go. That's right. And that's the other thing. The bond and the connection 
that these men felt for one another surprised, surprised them. Jim Brumall, Jim Brumall just published a book called Private Confederacies. And he and I share, I think, a similar argument. These men became emotionally connected because of what they endured in camp and in battle, that sense of dependence, that sense of connectedness. And Robert, you've been on the battlefields. You've imagined how these men fought. And as you well know, when they went into battle side by side, the power of physical touch, right? Mm -hmm. Side by side. And so there is so much at work, but we should not forget this sacrifice of blood had to have a higher meaning and it did for them. And we should never diminish that. But we should also not overlook the invisible forces of coercion, of course. And you're also talking about it. I'm sorry. You're also talking about a time where, you know, men or women, but in this case, men from Minnesota weren't very likely to meet a man from Indiana and someone from Maine's not very likely to meet someone from Pennsylvania. We take it for granted now that you can meet anybody you want at any time. I know that because of all the uh, friends requests I get on Facebook from women in Russia. (laughs) <laughs> I don't get that. Huh? Well, it's not it's right. not important, but but I'm the world. A, I'm going to get a podcast now. I want a podcast. I won't tell Beth. Anyway, <laughs> we we've come to. I could do this Civil War stuff. We've we've kind of glossed over Lincoln. A lot of the people we didn't mention Sherman too much, but we want to be respectful of your time. We end huh? we end the leaders and legends podcast. Every podcast with the same five questions. Uh-huh. And uh, so if you're ready, we're is ready. it rapid fire answers, rapid fire answers. Well, we'll well? give you a few seconds. You know, you're not great. Do I, hey, do I get some Girl Scout cookies? Since they sponsor you all, do you send Girl Scout cookies out to your guests? Well, I gave up sweets for Lent. So I got seven boxes at my house. So the next time oh. you're in Indy, just swing on by and I'll give them to no, you. Mail me a box. I got teenage <laughs> daughters. Here. I give it to them. <laughs> first question of the five questions. Uh, what was your first job? Uh, Cutting neighbor's grass, a, a neighbor, a lawn, cutting lawns. Does that, that count? Uh, that counts. That's been a, I think that more than one person has, has said okay. that. But uh, the first real job where I got a paycheck, where I had to like, for tax purposes, mm-hmm. Godfather's Pizza. Godfather's Pizza right on high school road. No longer there. That's, now that's an anachronism for sure. Yeah. Uh, back when they had the commercial, remember the commercial with the guy in the black hat and the white tie, that's the right. old guy? Um, right. Hey, you know what? The best job I ever got. I wasn't wearing socks one day. It was the middle of winter. I was complaining about working. And this woman, she had two kids. She was a single woman, single. She turned to me and she said, Look at you, complaining about working. You don't even care if you're going to get sick. You don't even wear socks. I get sick. No one's going to take care of my kids. Ooh, there is a lesson. <laughs> there is a working class lesson right there that I got. And I sure as hell needed it. I sure as hell needed it. Uh, the second question is, what was your first concert? That's a pretty good one. Uh, the Who. The Who. The Who. The Who's first farewell tour. Of course, they did 10 tours after that. <laughs> it was in Market Square Arena. In the Market early 80s, Arena, right? And, mm-hmm. That's right. Mm-hmm. And The Clash, my favorite all-time band, had opened for The Who throughout their tour, except Indianapolis. Who opened for them? Ready? David Johansson. Oh my gosh, the Roxy Music or not? Um, still, uh, oh, I know I'm that. Still bitter about. But that. he's got an alter ego with makeup. That's right. He's got the alter ego. He didn't do that. Oh shoot! Yeah, I have to think of that. Anyway, um, yeah. he sings the song "Hot, Hot, Hot." 
That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 He did do that. Too. Third yeah. question <laughs> is, and you can make this just these uh, about yeah. the Civil War, if not, but uh, if you could recommend any book to anyone, which book would you recommend? Um. There it is. Ready? Mm-hmm. Bloodlands. Bloodlands by Timothy Snyder. It is the most um, sophisticated, although accessible, explanation of Hitler's designs uh, as he looked to the east uh, toward, of course, uh, the Ukraine and toward ultimately the Soviet Union. Timothy Snyder, Bloodlands, the best history book ever. Fantastic. That's Read terrific. It. That's terrific. Well, uh, number four. Do you know it? No, you but I did. I did just finish reading uh, last summer Victor Davis Hanson's book about World War II, which is the best oh. book I've ever read about World War II. It's absolutely, yeah. unbelievably thought provoking. Yeah. Um, yeah. Number four, if we make this of War II, if you could witness any event in history, which would you choose? I'm just gonna, yeah, it's gonna be sort of cornballing, but I want to see Pickett's charge. Right? Or Pickett and Pettigrew's charge. Yeah? I want to witness that. I, uh, I mean, all this is so difficult for me to fathom, despite the fact that I have truly immersed myself in this material for so long, have walked Pickett and Pettigrew's charge countless times, mm-hmm. and I still have a very difficult time imagining how these men maintain their formations, right? Maintain uh, uh, that degree of discipline is truly astounding to me. Uh, and so, yes, I'd like to see that. Maybe a close second would be the Union attacks against Maurice Heights at Fredericksburg. That includes oh. a little, we got through a little Indiana trivia, and real quickly, mm-hmm. I hope we have time for this. The very first Union brigade that attacked Maurice Heights, commanded by Nathan Kimball from where? Indiana. You know what the party is. And where in Indiana? Ready? Fredericksburg, Indiana. Oh, Fredericksburg, you're kidding. Indiana. How about that? There you go. I think when I was You're asked the, when I was asked the question, I think I did Lee's surrender at Appomattox to see those two men together in the same room for that. The interest. Yeah. But you know, another one would be just very quickly. The other one would another one would be I'd love to see the men cheer after um, uh, the battle where um, uh, Lee, where Grant attacked Lee as part of the uh, overland campaign and they oh, thought right, they right. were going to go back north because the, the wilderness oh, yeah. when they thought they yeah, were going to go right. back north because it was such a horrible battle and then they had to right. come to a road and they turned south and all the men started cheering because they're like okay now we're right. going to fight this to the finish that's right. or maybe yeah. even the, uh, that that was the brock road that's the brock road or even maybe that's even the, the, the brock charge road and, yeah where brock they charge, road and there's a great there's a great sketch of woe did a great sketch of what you just yeah described yeah w-a-u-d yeah well that's yeah, right woad. alfred woe uh, last question, and before we let you go, is if you sure. could have dinner with anyone living right now in the world, a couple hours just to chat about whatever, not a family member, who whom right. would you choose? Um, this is making this hard on me. Uh, yeah, there's so many people. I'll just uh, I, I, I'm I'm gonna say it. I, you're you're gonna be you're you're going to not be surprised. I'd like to, to, to speak to President Obama. I'd like to chat with him. I'd like to chat with him. I want to come clean here, though. I want everyone to know 
even though I'm academic, don't write me off as some, you know, <laughs> liberal weed. I am an absolute independent. I, I am a Republican. I'm an Eisenhower Republican. And in fact, I, I like Ike. And I should note, I live within almost, what, a quarter of a mile of the golf course, which is now part of the battlefield. But back in the day, when Eisenhower lived in Gettysburg, I can see the golf course where Eisenhower played with Arnold Palmer. And Ike's reputation is going up as it should. I like Ike. I like Ike. Well, the best thing he ever did was elevate the career of Richard Nixon. <laughs> hey, you know what? The Republicans wouldn't even have Nixon now, man. I, hell, I'd take Nixon right now. I'm so damn desperate, I'd take him. <laughs> Dr. Carmichael, uh, Pete, it's so great to talk to you, for you to make time to uh, 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 bolster us Civil War buffs here in Indiana. We'd love to have you on again if you're ever in town. If, and if you Anytime. ever need anything from, from me, I really appreciate your generosity and I'm awed by your intellect and your, and your, the generosity of your intellect. Thank you very much. That's very nice. Uh, you know what I need from you, man? I need the Girl Scout cookies. Send those out. Well, send Give me a copy of that damn book and you'll get some okay. Girl Scout that's, cookies. That's, that had, sounds like a fair trade. I had to pay fair for trade. the last one of yours I had. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Robert, man. You Dang, are, man, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Thank you. We did too very much. You are listening right. to Leaders and Legends with Professor Peter Carmichael. We are sponsored by Veteran Strategies and the Girl Scouts of Central Indiana. Thank you very much for listening, and I guarantee you one thing. You're a hell of a lot smarter after listening to this podcast with Peter Carmichael than you won before. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Mm-hmm.